0: I was motivated to start working on this book uh, right around the uh, election of Donald Trump. And we began to hear a level of hostility towards the press uh, that I did not remember in my lifetime. So I was really wondering how much of this was truly unprecedented in American history and how much maybe did have some precedence.
1: Hello, I'm your host Steve Ordauer, and welcome to Rhythm of Life. Today on the show, I welcome a dear friend and colleague, John Marshall, who has written a vital and timely book titled Clash Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. This work explores the political, economic, social, and technological forces that have shaped the relationship between U.S. presidents and the press during pivotal moments in the country's history and helps us understand how we arrived at our current troubled state of affairs. John Marshall is a very accomplished journalist, author and teacher. He has written for a wide array of notable publications including the Atlantic, Washington Post and the New York Times. He also teaches media history and reporting courses with a focus on social justice issues at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism and has also served as the director of the school's graduate journalism program. He's well-versed in this arena, and I'm delighted to speak with him about his latest work. John, I love your book. It's a pleasure to see you. Um, and I just want to say, before we get into your wonderful book that's so timely um, and important to to discuss, I really enjoyed teaching with you. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was you. a wonderful I was always, experience.
0: I always loved working with you, Steve.
1: Oh, thank and you. And it was
0: always fun to, to be... Uh, be together in the classroom, and thank you very much for the kind words about the book and it's a, It's a
1: pleasure for me to be on on your podcast oh thank you well you know um, every when i when I heard about your book and then I read the introduction, of course, I dove right in and it's like your introduction to your book reminded me of this surreal slide to this um, kind of dystopian environment that is creeping into our reality and um i was just curious i i would imagine you would share some of that to some degree Um, and that was probably a motivating factor to write the book a what was the real motivating factor and how long did it take to formulate the idea for this book
0: great question I was motivated to start working on this book uh, right around the uh, election of Donald Trump in 2016 mm. and as he began his, his first term in 2017. Uh-huh. And we began to hear a level of hostility towards the press uh, that I did not remember uh, in my lifetime and mm. efforts to try to control and intimidate journalists that I had never seen uh, mm. or observed before. Uh, although I'd seen elements of it before, never never quite to this this degree. So I was really wondering how much of this was truly unprecedented mm-hmm. in American history and how much maybe did have some precedence. And as a media historian, I, I knew some of the pieces of this and, and, and mm-hmm. had read a little bit about previous presidents in the press, but had never mm-hmm. really taken a deep dive into it. So, I wanted to go all the way back uh, to the beginning, uh, to the first presidents, to see what we could figure out were the forces that led us to this point where the relationship between the president and the press was so tortured and tumultuous. Uh, figure out what those forces were and perhaps mm. look at ways that we might try to find a better path in terms of what the relationship is between journalists and the president
1: and you know it was I mean as you were speaking what really just struck me and what really struck me about Trump's presidency is the normalization of insanity almost for lack of a better phrase I mean it was that was most disturbing when so much was coming at us so quickly right when he got elected and you know I kinda figured it would be pretty bad yeah I but I didn't realize it would be that bad but then it became you couldn't distinguish between what was true or what was not, and people couldn't get their grounding. You know what I'm saying? It was yeah. like people like got thrown off their bearings. Yeah, no, I think, we, I think we
0: have normalized a lot of behavior that mm. would have been unthinkable mm. even, mm-hmm. maybe, even 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I would question you, – you called it insanity, and I understand why it feels that way. <laughs> yes. uh, I'm not sure – I think it was a very deliberate – strategy on, on the mm. part of Trump and his administration Absolutely. to mm-hmm. belittle journalists to intimidate journalists uh, to build distrust in in the mm. media so that he could get away with telling people that he was the one who knew the truth he's the one who spoke the truth mm. and they should disbelieve anything that they're hearing from the press about him I that that was mm-hmm. a very deliberate strategy on his part. He he even said he even said that was his strategy when he, he had an interview, I think it was with <laughs> Leslie Stahl, uh, late in 2016, where, where she asked him why, why he was so difficult uh, with, with reporters and, wh- and why the hostility and, and he said outright, I, I want to discredit you. I want to discredit you so that what I say goes unchallenged.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I should say, um, orchestrated insanity okay <laughs> <laughs> Planned insanity. so yeah and you know it's it's interesting how he kind of shows his cards mm-hmm. sometimes like you were just saying um yeah i i'm specifically doing this to discredit you um and it's so obvious to somebody kind of from the outside looking in but what was really striking about your book is that there are plenty of examples of these hostile relationships throughout history i mean um you know, for for instance, I, I love your introduction. It says, since the nation's early years, presidents have frequently tried to attack, restrict, manipulate, and demonize the press in order to strengthen their own, own power. Obviously, Trump's at the top of that list, at least from our experience. But, you know, what, what are some of the other examples that you'd like to share with our audience before they read the book that might be... I mean, it was really interesting, but kind of surprising. I didn't know to what degree this hostility persisted from one administration to another. Sure, sure. Uh, There are, you know,
0: unfortunately plenty of examples of that kind of hostility towards the press and uh, animosity and and outright suppression of the press. Mm -hmm. And I would say probably the three that would come most to mind uh, that I... Who I highlight in the book, uh, starting with John Adams, our our second president, uh-huh. Uh-huh. who was Villa. It was a very partisan time. Uh, we think mm. we're we think we're partisan now, living in a highly partisan era. Uh, it was just as partisan then, if if not more so. Uh, there there was very little middle ground in politics between the Federalist Party that that Adams, of course, was part of, mm. and the emerging opposition. The they called themselves then the Democratic Republican Party, led by. Jefferson and Madison and later kind of morphed into the Democratic Party in the 1800s mm. uh-huh. uh, and they were vicious towards one another uh, uh-huh. and, and, and the newspapers and pamphlets that, that Jefferson and, and Madison controlled and influenced uh, were deeply nasty <laughs> towards John Adams uh, on a personal level uh, as well as criticizing his policies mm. and there wasn't yet a, a foundation of, of, of understanding of sort of what a free press meant in mm-hmm. the country, uh, and the Federalists in, who controlled Congress uh, passed uh, the Sedition Act, uh, which, which Adams signed. And which could you it, just
1: explain what that is? I exactly. will. I will.
0: Uh, the Sedition Act basically made it illegal to say or write anything that was critical of the government uh, or critical of the president. So talk about something that really went counter to the First Amendment. Uh, I know. I mean, the, the, it's hard to imagine any law that, that could have been more draconian in that way. Uh, <laughs> but the Federalists controlled mm-hmm. government. They controlled Congress. They controlled presidency mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at that time. And they totally, almost completely controlled the courts mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and they went after uh, their Democratic Republican opponents uh, mm-hmm. with vehemence. Uh, mm-hmm. The most i think absurd example this this wasn't an, an example of the press but an example of free speech uh there was a revolutionary war veteran who was a, a tugboat captain uh in new jersey uh, i think you know along the uh the hudson river uh mm-hmm. and adams came through and there was some big kind of you know festival to honor the president and uh they're shooting cannonballs up in the air and this this poor man uh, luther I think his name was Luther Baldwin, was was a little bit drunk. Uh, he was hanging out at a tavern. He said, ah, I hope one of those cannonballs hits him in the arse. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I hope it's okay to say arse on your, <laughs> yes. on your podcast. <laughs> yes. uh, I hope it hits him in the arse. Uh, and the tavern keeper, who was uh, a federalist, uh, thought that mm. was terrible that he had uttered something like that against the president. Sure. And old, old Luther Baldwin was, was tossed in jail for saying that. Nice. Uh, so that, that was kind of an extreme example but even in the um, the newspapers, uh, and this is uh, actually an example of a, of a magazine, there was a, a congressman named Matthew Lyon, uh, who was oh. aligned with, with Jefferson and Madison, uh, very critical of, of Adams, uh, mm-hmm. and he wrote uh, some things in his magazine, he was, he was from Vermont, uh, saying that uh, Adams was full of, of, of too much pomp and, and was a fool, and uh, And he was arrested. And after about a a trial that lasted a few hours, uh, they didn't even give him time to really hire an attorney, uh, tossed him in jail. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: So this is a congressman. This is a magazine editor uh, Mm -hmm. who dared to write something critical of the president uh, and was thrown in jail. Uh, This happened dozens of times uh, Mm -hmm. with other newspapers that were that were critical of Adams. Uh, But in the end, it really backfired against Adams because they Mm -hmm. were so heavy handed about it uh, and so obviously unfair about it Mm -hmm. that the opposition uh, began to get more and more sympathy uh, and as many newspapers that were forced to shut down as a result of the Sedition Act more of them popped up uh, that were critical of Adams uh, and it's believed that uh, the heavy handed Sedition Act was one reason Adams lost the presidency in 1800 Mm -hmm. to, to Thomas Jefferson. Who then let the law lapse? Let the Sedition Act lapse once he was president. So that that would be my first example of a president whose mm. uh, heavy-handed oppression, suppression of the press, uh, was really—I mm-hmm. uh, don't, I don't know if it was consciously a role model for Trump, but certainly was a uh, existed as a precedent in U.S. history.
1: Well, it's interesting how you—you know—one of the main points that you make in the book is that presidents who foster a decent relationship with the press, you know, have a better go of it, basically, in terms of being able to, you know, um, have their policy initiatives manifest and actually take shape uh, on the political landscape. Could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Uh, So, the presidents
0: uh, who had a really good relationship with the press, I would include Mm -hmm. uh, Well, George Washington did, but he was never really challenged that much because he was such Mm. a such a high figure, you know, such such a Mm. hero of the revolution. And of course, uh, some people thought he should just be king. Uh, He didn't get that much (laughs) criticism. uh, And then then poor John Adams did. Uh, Mm -hmm. The ones who had a good relationship with the press would include Abraham Lincoln, Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. Franklin Roosevelt. I would include uh, Ronald Reagan in that uh, John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh, And there, when historians rank the greatest presidents, those ones are usually, you know, in the top 10 or or possibly top 20 uh, Mm -hmm. presidents. Uh, And in some ways, it makes sense. They say that that journalists write the first rough draft of history. Mm -hmm. And that rough draft often sort of influences the final draft. I I love that. That that historians write.
1: I love that when I read that, you know, journalists often write the first rough draft of his I mean, it's true, because they're documenting what's actually happening. And when somebody when somebody such as yourself, an historian, and a journalist goes back and looks at tries to piece together a story from the past, they're generally looking at newspaper articles, often right,
0: magazine articles, or, you know, in later years, broadcast transcripts, and and, and so forth. Uh, so some of the ones who had a bad relationship uh, with the press uh, would um, include, you know, Richard Nixon is an obvious one, uh, who's usually not <laughs> yeah. fondly fondly remembered by historians. Right. Uh, right. Donald Trump falls in that camp. Uh, George mm-hmm. W. Bush, a, a little bit more mixed than Nixon and, mm-hmm. and Trump. Uh, in, in some ways, he had some good rapport with some individual reporters, but on the whole, a pretty contentious relationship with the Washington mm. press score. Uh, mm-hmm. He's generally not ranking too high so far in the history polls either. Uh, so I, I think a president who's going to be highly effective needs to find some way to have at least a good working relationship with, with the reporters who are covering him.
1: And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you obviously Lincoln is lauded and viewed as um, this amazing uh, politician that brought the country together um, during a very um, tumultuous time obviously with slavery etc but even in your book you write um, you know his curl uh, there was another significant and more troubling aspect of Lincoln's relationship with the press the curtailment of First Amendment rights they he, sh- he shut down newspapers confiscated printing presses prevented some newspapers from being etc I mean even the good ones mm-hmm are still uh, have a track record of quite a bit of malfeasance in this in this arena. Could you just speak a little bit to what Lincoln was doing? At sure. The, at the time? Uh, so you
0: know, obviously, this is during the Civil War uh, when the country <laughs> w- was literally torn apart, and we had a right. we had an insurrection, armed insurrection uh, yeah. that was trying to overthrow the government. Uh, uh, sounds so,
1: really familiar. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, some echoes echoes of that. Yeah, recently. Uh, so you know, in, in some ways, I want to cut Lincoln some slack, you know, because the country okay. was was literally at the precipice of, of right. falling apart. Okay. Uh, but and, and yet and it was primarily the Union Army. And, and in fact, it was also the Confederate Army as well. Uh, they were just mm. as uh, intent on, on suppressing the press as the Union Army. Uh, but Lincoln allowed the the army to uh, you know banish reporters from covering the battles. Uh, they would listen on the telegraph wires, which were the the hot new way of transmitting mm-hmm. news in those days. They would listen in mm-hmm. and they would censor stuff going through the telegraph wires uh, and newspapers in the north that were sympathetic uh, towards the Confederacy uh, were shut down at times. Uh, mm-hmm. so, in some ways we can say, well, I can't blame Lincoln. Uh, he had to do what he had to do to win the war yet. It, it set a dangerous precedent and exactly. And during world war one, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, even though the U S itself was not under attack, uh, he felt that in order, uh, to win the war, he had to, uh, do what he could to suppress, uh, the press and, uh, he he passed his uh, own version of the sedition of uh, sedition act, as well as uh, an espionage act, and another law.
1: Espionage, yes.
0: Another law called Which, Trading with the Enemies Act, uh, uh, and yeah. sort of like Adams and like Lincoln during the war, editors were were tossed in jail. Uh, mm. Newspapers were forced to shut down because they cut off mm. the uh, the postal privileges and and magazines and newspapers that that count on being able to be mailed. Uh, wow! Mail out their copies as well as receive information mm-hmm. through the mail, which is was the way to communicate in those days. Uh, couldn't Couldn't mm-hmm. exist without without their postal rights. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was a a, a pastor who uh, spoke against the draft. He was tossed in jail. Someone else who said something. Well, war, war is immoral. He was tossed in mm-hmm. jail. So anything mm-hmm. that 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 uh, even in generic terms that said war or the draft were bad. Uh, were, were, were prosecuted. Uh, so it was a, a very heavy er- era of uh, repression ag- against the free press.
1: And what how do you how, how would you view Obama's relationship with the press in general? So
0: Obama's an, is an interesting story. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would sort of pull out I kind of emphasize three different threads in the Obama chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, he was our first social media president. Mm -hmm. And like other presidents before him, Franklin Roosevelt with radio, JFK and and Eisenhower with TV and Mm -hmm. later Reagan with TV, uh, Obama took advantage of a new technology uh, to Mm -hmm. find a a different way to communicate directly to the public and, Mm -hmm. and get around the White House press corps who wouldn't necessarily write and, and broadcast exactly what he wanted to write. So presidents mm-hmm. are always looking at ways to get around the the press corps and, and get their message to the public. And Obama used social media very effectively to do that. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump took that to a, a whole different level. Uh, with with and Twitter. also
1: Obama was on uh, between two ferns. And he did some things I mean, he was he's a very charismatic guy,
0: right? So he and, took uh, and Bill Clinton kind of was the one who started exactly. like this, uh, Using late night television and the talk shows, you know, Obama would go on The View, he went on Oprah Winfrey, you mentioned oh. Two Ferns, uh, shows where he could really be a little bit more lighthearted, show his humor, mm-hmm. still get his message across and not worry mm-hmm. as much as get it about getting a hard hitting critical questions, which he might have to answer in a, in a White House briefing room, uh, mm-hmm. but not on Between Two Ferns. Uh, Clinton did that with. Uh, he would go on. Uh, the, he went on MTV. He, he went yeah. on the Arsenio Hall show. Clinton was really mm-hmm. the first to kind of take advantage of these late night shows. Yeah, yeah. Another thing about Obama uh, was uh, the level of uh, vitriol he received, which may be uh, similar to to the level that, that that John Adams was getting from the opposition, but but with. Uh, talk radio and mm. uh, cable TV, particularly Fox
1: News, mm-hmm. uh,
0: which had been unleashed uh, starting in the 90s, actually late mm-hmm. 80s, because Ronald Reagan did away with the Fairness Doctrine.
1: Yes, please speak to that. So Let me I'll talk about,
0: about uh, Obama <laughs> okay. and then maybe we can circle back to the Fairness yes, Doctrine. Please. Yes, please. yeah, uh, absolutely. Obama was was you know, from the minute he was elected, actually before he was elected, was was hit with a, a fuselage of, of just virulent, often racist uh, criticism uh, from from right wing media, Mm -hmm. uh, including the birth of the Tea Party, which was really uh, was fueled largely by 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 Fox and and, and talk radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Obama was dealing with an extremely critical press, which is one reason he used social media uh, for his own ends to to try Mm -hmm. to, to reach his base. Uh, as well. Uh, but another threat of the Obama story uh, was he was not that friendly with a lot of journalists who were covering the White House. Uh, oh. And he very much limited the interviews he did. Uh, he limited the amount of sort of spontaneous, uh, take a few questions when he's leaving the White House kind of things which most presidents will, will do. Or after a photo op, they'll answer a few questions. Obama was very heavy handed about not allowing photojournalists uh, mm in to cover him because he wanted his official photographer, the official White House photographer, Pete Souza, to take the photos, mm-hmm. and those were the photos the White House would disseminate through social mm-hmm. media put up on the whitehouse.gov website. Uh, while photojournalists who might take a photo of Obama not necessarily always in glowing terms, uh, sure. they, they pretty much banished, uh, banished is too strong a word, but, but very much limited their, ac- mm-hmm. their access uh, to Obama. And then Obama dusted off the Espionage Act that had yes. been passed under question. Woodrow Wilson back in uh, 1917 or so. Mm-hmm. And his Justice Department went after whistleblowers uh, using the Espionage Act at, at twice the rate of all other presidents before him combined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah, a very heavy about. handed effort uh, to intimidate uh, people mm-hmm. who might leak embarrassing information and they mm. always said oh it's, it's for national security which sometimes maybe uh, mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. but but often it's information that just makes the government or or the administration looks mm. bad and everything right, is almost right. routinely marked as as t- top secret <laughs> these days uh mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of the default marking so they say oh he, he leaked something that was top secret but what was top secret was really that a, you know, a contract went to uh, a firm with lots of lobbyists and, and cronies rather than the, the low cost bidder, which was one example of what, what one of the uh, Espionage mm-hmm. Act uh, attempts was, was done. Uh, so uh, Obama really had kind of a chilly relationship with, with the White House press corps mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, was creative in his use of social media. Uh, but didn't particularly set a good precedent uh, in terms of being open to the press. Mm.
1: And he was, you know, one of the things he put forth in his campaign was transparency. He's was all about transparency, supposedly. So what's so wonderful about what you've done is it it gives people a much more insightful view of what's actually Gone down with different yeah. presidents. And, and, and in fairness
0: them. to Obama, they did put more information on on the White House website, uh, mm-hmm. far more than the Bush administration before mm. him. It did, or mm. Clinton was the first to have a website, but there wasn't very <clears> much on it in those days because it was still fairly new technology. But the Clinton mm. did put a, did allow access to a lot more federal information in White House. Clinton and, or oh, Obama. I'm sorry, Obama. Oh, Obama it. did. Okay right uh, than beforehand so that that mm. that is one way he he did reach his his promise of, of
1: transparency but in mm. other
0: ways he certainly didn't
1: and you know that the, there's a um i love just you the segments the big points that you make in your book and in your intro the second one was technological advances have fragmented the media and enhanced president's ability to avoid the white house press corps and communicate directly to the public you know you gave wonderful examples of this with with trump going to twitter obviously we all know of that one obama using you know really setting the um you know it's like a benchmark in terms of his ability to use social media effectively but then we also had you know other people use social media effectively to help get trump elected which was sh- straight up nefarious and probably totally illegal. But anyway, but we don't have any, we don't have any laws to regulate this new environment. I mean, before, you know, when you and I were growing up, we had the big three broadcasting outlets and newspapers that were established, and they were somewhat the gatekeepers. And now it's a whole different ball ballgame. Um, and I'm wondering how you see this moving forward. How do we deal with that? That's a big question.
0: Uh, <laughs> so let's let's first uh, roll it back to the past a little bit to try to understand where, where we got, how we got here. And then sure. if I don't answer that question, remind me and I'll answer it. Sure. Uh, but absolutely. I think it's important to, to understand. Uh, so we really. As you said, you know, you and I grew up with you know, there were three TV networks. Uh, most cities maybe had two newspapers. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few big ones like Chicago, New York had more than two in those days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were three main news magazines, Time, Newsweek and then U.S. News and World Report. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was really kind of it uh, in -hmm. terms of where you might get your news. Uh, Possibly Mm -hmm. uh, there was a news radio show where you lived. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because of uh, cable television to start with, we now have hundreds of channels, uh, including uh, several who uh, are news or, or at least pretending to do news uh, <laughs> available on with cable.
1: The, with the video news releases, which look a hell of a lot like a legitimate yeah. actual story, but they're not at all. They're basically propaganda. But people can really kind of pick
0: and choose their their cable TV channels that they want to watch. And, and as you said, live Live in their own information bubble, and you know, people people on the right do that. People on the left do that. It's not
1: absolutely, and which is intimately tied in with the fairness doctrine, which Reagan pulled back. Which is basically broadcast outlets had to show both sides of an important issue, but with the fairness doctrine, the Reagan please correct me if I'm wrong, the Reagan administration argued that well, we really don't need it because it's cable and it's inhibiting free speech, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Um,
0: yeah. So the Fairness Doctrine was put in place after World War II, And the idea was that the airwaves are really owned by the public. Uh, uh-huh. And if you're going to be broadcasting on TV or broadcasting on radio, you should be doing so with, with a public service mission, uh, uh-huh. which meant you should have content that uh, was was useful to a community. Uh, And if you had a political viewpoint on it, you had an obligation to offer equal time to an opposing viewpoint, whether it's Mm. an opposing candidate or someone's arguing in favor of a particular policy, you needed to give some equal time to to the other side of the policy debate. Mm. And it it was it was enforced sort of off and on by the FCC in in the early years. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there were certainly lots of highly partisan on on talk on radio, some Mm -hmm. very partisan uh, radio shows. But starting with uh, kind of the Johnson administration, uh, they began to enforce it a little bit with Kennedy began to enforce it more heavily. And there were some court cases that solidified uh, the the power of the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, Mm -hmm. So by the 70s, uh, there really By and large, most broadcasts, whether it was TV or radio, was giving somewhat roughly equal time to different sides Uh of political debates. And then, as you said, Ronald Reagan uh, and his chairman of the FCC, Mark Fowler, uh, just were in favor of deregulation uh, Uh of of almost every industry, including uh, the media. Uh And they... uh, Congress had passed a law to uh, cement the fairness doctrine in place in 1987. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reagan vetoed it. Right. And then uh, Mark Fowler, the chairman, got the FCC just to do away with it altogether. Because he said Mm -hmm. TV is nothing more than like no different than a toaster. It's just an appliance. Um,
1: What's the big deal?
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, didn't mention that, that, that appliances can uh, shape opinions and, and frame the way we view the world. Uh, yeah. Maybe frame the way we eat our toast, but not, not, right. not, the way we, uh, <laughs> not the information that we need to have a functioning democracy. Uh, exactly. And almost immediately after the Fairness Doctrine went away, mm. uh, a radio host based in Sacramento mm. Uh, mm. went national. Uh, oh. and was syndicated uh, by was the that? name of Rush Limbaugh.
1: Oh, yes.
0: You may have heard of him. <laughs> uh, and he very soon was being uh, syndicated on hundreds of radio stations, also had his mm-hmm. own TV show,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: publishing books. Uh, and it's sort of interesting. It, it was a, a pivot point, uh, not just in terms of media, but I think in politics. Mm. Uh, before then, political parties really controlled what happened in their parties like they could really kind mm-hmm. of influence who the candidates mm-hmm. were who was going to get funded mm-hmm. uh what policies were going to be supported uh within the party and there were debates and arguments and didn't always go one way or the other but but by and large the parties had a lot of influence once mm. talk radio and then and then cable was unleashed uh i believe that the media is often now the arbiter of what is going on within the Republican Party or, or the Democratic Party there. Uh, what, what Fox says, what what the leading talk radio, what Limbaugh used to say before he died and now other people mm-hmm. like Sean Hannity and, and, and others, Mark Levin, who are you know, dominant on, on talk radio, can shape the d- shape what Republican voters want to do more so than any organized political party mm-hmm. does. and And I think to a lesser degree, on the left, uh, on the Democratic side. But I think to some degree, we can see that with MSNBC and and uh, Morning Joe and and uh, CNN having a real mm-hmm. influence on sort of what what direction the party takes.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little bit on. on oh, no, on the, te- please. <laughs> the technology please, it's
1: wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, that's so we have so we have um,
0: fragmentation now on, on, on cable. We don't just have three mm-hmm. TV networks on, mm-hmm.
1: having new shows. We, you know, we've got a dozen or so. And in line with that, John, I just have to say, you know, the the uh, uh, conglomeration uh, and and the um, the the level of ownership over a large amount of broadcast outlets by single entities is really dist- particularly Sinclair Broadcast. You know, Sinclair on TV, um, iHeart on radio uh-huh. is just as
0: uh, I think just as dominant. And then mm-hmm. of course we have uh the internet uh coming of mm-hmm. age uh in the 1990s uh, at least the World Wide mm-hmm. Web coming of age in the 1990s. Mhm. Which opened the door uh you know first to bloggers uh mm-hmm. a few people like Matt Drudge uh who had a huge influence on the Clinton administration mm-hmm. uh you know hun- hundreds and then thousands uh, I don't know if the Blog, I think bloggers have probably reached over a million at one point at least. Mm, uh, well. And then social media. Uh, so anybody now with uh, a phone or a uh, Wi-Fi connection can be their own publisher of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So talk about fragmentation. We, we've got hundreds of millions of, of media outlets now. Uh, we we may not, You and I may not think of ourselves as being media mm-hmm. outlets, but anytime I post something on social oh, absolutely. media... I'm putting something out there.
1: And, you know, I mean, and what really I remember um, uh, when I was one of the teachers for a method seminar at Medill, which has a really interesting history. It comes, you know, it started from Joseph Medill, who had, I believe, a relationship with uh, McCoy McCormick, well, McCormick was, was his or, uh, from grandson. From the Tribune, yes, yeah, from the Tribune. That was very. And Medill was a very
0: close advisor of, of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, but I remember just when I was, you know, one of the teachers in this, this teaching young people who are starting out at a, you know, a, a top-notch journalism school at Northwestern teaching them methods of how to do journalism, corroborating evidence, really understanding the process to try to actually tell the story in a productive way so that people can really understand what's going on in the world around them. It's absolutely critical. And now as you're talking about bloggers and anybody with a phone can, you know, start a YouTube channel, what have you, you know, it's one thing, on one hand, it's good to have freedom of expression. It's good to have different viewpoints. But then where's is a filter good is a filter bad? How's that played out? I don't know if it's played out so well for us. You know what I mean? I think it's a mixed. uh, I think
0: it's a mixed bag. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, uh, it's allowed great things to happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. First, the internet and social media, people, First, you know, it connects the world in ways that have never been connected. Um, Uh I can very quickly now find out what's going on in Bangladesh, if I want to find Uh out. Uh, Uh And uh, people can share information that way. It allows journalists to easily, well, not necessarily easily, a lot more easily uh, do global projects uh, Mm. than ever before. Uh, Uh Because a lot of the issues we face, climate change, uh, terrorism, terrorism. uh, pandemics are, are global things, uh-huh. uh, wars. Uh, they're not confined within national borders. Uh, so, journalists do now cooperate uh, through organizations like the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists on these mm-hmm. worldwide projects uh, mm. that can unearth things uh, that had never been unearthed before. And it gives voice to people. Uh, you know, as I know a lot of people in my generation like to look back on the 60s and 70s is sort of a golden age of journalism. And, and in some ways it was, but in some ways it wasn't because it was very mm-hmm. much controlled by people who looked uh, like me, uh, the, the white mm-hmm. white men uh, right. of a certain generation, uh, mm-hmm. and a certain education, you know, class background. Mm-hmm. And uh, majority people <laughs> were actually shut out of that. Uh, women, right. and people of color, exactly. uh, whose exactly. perspectives were rarely uh, included. Uh, mm-hmm. And very important stories were missed uh, mm-hmm. as a result of that, uh, and not just missed uh, there a, a lot of actually great scholarships coming out on this now, how newspapers, particularly in the south, were you know very active uh, supporters of racial segregation and Jim Crow mm-hmm. and, and even mm-hmm. lynchings and, and, and racial terror mm-hmm. uh, the, the Tulsa massacre. Uh, in 19, I believe nineteen twenty, 20, 21, oh, 21, uh, yeah. you know, the newspapers in Tulsa were backed, you know, that massacre.
1: Yeah. I mean, it gives credibility to people's, uh, horrible actions. Right. Uh, so there's a you know, very, that,
0: that mainstream press, uh, that people sometimes look back on as a golden age, uh, often and in many ways was, was highly, uh, you know, detrimental uh, mm. to people uh, who are who are marginalized and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I look at it, that's why I look at at the current age as, as a mixed bag uh, because right. now you know we have things like like Black Twitter, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, mm-hmm. that have done a tremendous job of publicizing <clears throat> uh, incidents incidents of, of of terror by police against black people, which. Mm-hmm was rarely, if ever, covered before. Oh, totally. Uh, and, and, totally. and they've been able to, to get that conversation and public debate going, uh, which would not have been possible, I think, in the 1960s or 1970s.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting how, you know, with the, with, with the various times and the different generations, there's new technology, there's new way to express yourself. I mean... Uh, it just reminded me, as you were talking, how effective FDR was, say, for instance, with radio, you know, um, with the fireside chats. Etc. Could you talk a little bit Absolutely.
0: about that? Absolutely. So I think he, of all the presidents taking advantage of new technology, he might be at, at the top.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know,
0: radio had been around for a decade or so by the time he mm-hmm. became president. But it was mm-hmm. just starting to become to have like national networks like NBC and CBS carrying radio mm-hmm. shows, that the, the signal, the the technology and the and the quality and the signals got got good enough that that radio mm. could really uh, reach well over half half of the American public, which mm-hmm. in the twenties it was much it was much smaller. Mm-hmm. Other presidents before FDR had tried radio a little bit. Uh, Warren Harding was sort of famous, well, not famous, but he uh, in his use of radio, uh, maybe infamous might be the better word. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> he um, he. Uh, He treated radio like he was giving a big campaign rally. So he'd have the radio Mm -hmm. microphone in front of him. And in a big campaign Mm -hmm. rally, when they didn't have really good PA systems in those days, you know, the candidate would have to shout. So Harding would just sort of like shout into the radio microphone. Oh, my God. And it didn't, the people listening didn't really particularly like it. It was not, it was not effective. And then. It wasn't
1: intimate. No, he he did not have the
0: the, the touch. (laughs) Uh, Herbert Hoover was just sort of grouchy and would kind of grumble uh, into the the radio and and, uh, didn't like to answer questions from reporters and would just kind of snarl back when he was asked something so he was not particularly effective either Mm. fdr um first of all he he'd worked he was at harvard uh he'd -hmm. worked on the harvard crimson student newspaper Mm -hmm. he had a sense of what journalists did and what they needed to do their jobs Mm -hmm. Uh, so he could play into that and understand okay reporters have these deadlines they need to have so many stories a week i can I can feed them this information that's going to make them happy while still spinning the story my way. Uh, And when he was governor, he had actually he'd written both newspaper columns uh, and he had a sort of mini version of his fireside chats when he was governor uh, Mm -hmm. to the people of Mm -hmm. New York. So he had some practice with radio doing it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he had sort of this uh, he sounded like everyone's kind of. Friendly. friendly uncle who they who they both respect and they like you know he kind Mm -hmm. he had this air both of sort of authority but but kindly Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. it he he Mm -hmm. knew how he knew how to be warm with his voice and be very Mm -hmm. clear with it so within 10 days of of starting his administration he gave his first (coughs) fireside radio chat and more more than Mm -hmm. half the country listened to it wow Uh, it was about the banking crisis Mm. Uh, and the humorous Will Rogers joked afterwards that he, he, Roosevelt explained the crisis so well and what he was going to do that even the bankers understood it. Uh, so, um, <laughs> That's awesome. And he got, you know, every, he, he got widespread praise uh, for how he did it. Uh, mm-hmm. And he didn't do a lot of fireside chats. He'd averaged about two per year because he wanted to mm-hmm. make sure to make every one of them special. But whenever there was mm-hmm. a real... A tense point or crisis point or time where he really felt like he needed to persuade the public uh he would use his fireside chats uh and he would mm-hmm. begin with my friends and you know, mm-hmm. like he's talking to his to his neighbors uh and mm-hmm. people would gather around the radio to listen and mm. uh it, it was a great example of of using a new technology in a different way uh mm-hmm. to get around the the powerful publishers in the day uh the, most most White House reporters liked the Roosevelt's because they treated the reporters well and would have them over for mm-hmm. dinner, let their kids use the White House playground and have mm-hmm. them over for dances and so forth. So they were very good <laughs> at sort nice. of uh, charming, the, the White House reporters and they joked around with them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the powerful publishers of the day, uh, William Randolph Hearst, who you and your listeners may have heard of, uh, probably the most powerful media mogul, perhaps of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. Was uh, after the first few months of Roosevelt's administration was was steadfastly opposed to him. Henry Mm. Luce, the publisher of Time magazine and then later Fortune magazine and then later Life magazine Mm. uh, was quite conservative and didn't and didn't like the the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Mm. Deal. And mm-hmm. then uh, you mentioned Colonel McCormick earlier of the Chicago yes. Tribune, which was the and there
1: is a McCormick building right, right, at uh, right here of in Northwestern, Northwestern University. In the- but he was the
0: publisher of the Tribune, most powerful mm-hmm. newspaper yep. in the Midwest. And he was adamantly opposed to Roosevelt and would compare mm-hmm. Roosevelt to Hitler and compare Roosevelt to Stalin. Wow. Uh, wow, you know, really okay. extreme stuff. Wow. <laughs> um, that's and, and then when, uh, really his paper would, would, would publish this, this kind of crazy Stories uh, mm-hmm. that uh, had, had very little bearing on the truth when when it came to Roosevelt. So Roosevelt felt like he needed to go around these publishers mm-hmm. who were quite dominant, uh, and and he used the fireside chats to do that.
1: Yeah, and, and Nixon was like the exact opposite. I mean, he was just ruthless and just harsh, and and he, I, yeah, I don't know if 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 he is the. F- he seemed to be very reminiscent of what we were experiencing with uh, uh, Trump. When I was reading your book, just the the um, vitriol that he had toward the press. Can you speak to that? Yeah.
0: Uh, yes and no. <coughs> okay. uh, Nixon, yeah, definitely had the vitriol towards the press. He hated journalists uh, from way back. Even though he generally enjoyed in his early years as a congressman and senator, he usually got more favorable press than negative press. Mm-hmm. But mm. but his personality was such that anything critical just really stung him and dug deep inside of him, and he had sort of this yeah. paranoia uh, mm-hmm. and just thin skinned. Uh, actually, thin skinned was kind of reminding me a little bit of John Adams. Uh, didn't like the criticism either uh but nixon took it kind of to a different level but nixon yes. nixon publicly um would say usually which was kind of until until the end uh would say the right things about the importance of a free press uh and how much uh it was uh uh important to have uh the, 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 the role that journalists played in informing the
1: public. He, he, do, do you think, just from what you've studied and what you know of Nixon, do you think he was had some semblance of actually believing that? Because because Trump did not. Trump he did not. Care. And, and he, Trump, Trump he you know, you Trump
0: all on the surface was was almost complete hostility. But oh Nixon thought it was important to at least have the veneer exactly. of, of being friendly towards the press. Right, uh, right. And in some ways it, it, it worked <laughs> in his first his first Mm -hmm. term Mm -hmm. and I think also it was just the norm in those days uh Mm -hmm. to uh respect journalists and and, uh the uh generally the popularity of journalists in you know opinion polls were were much higher Mm -hmm. uh so I think he felt like politically he couldn't directly (sighs) be as hostile himself although he sent his vice president Spiro Agnew out to make some very hostile speeches Mm -hmm. towards the press. And Nixon helped to write those speeches. He knew exactly what Agnew was doing. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: And he was delighted, Uh, uh, one famous quote after Agnew gave his first uh, speech that was calling the uh, TV networks this unelected elite that was against the interest of the great majority of Americans. Mm. uh, Nixon said, well, that really uh, flicked a scab off that wound, didn't it? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, it yeah, no, it, uh, but he said that, of course, in private. Whereas Trump probably would course. have said that something like that. Oh my
1: God! In public, the thing about Trump that's so like crazy, or at least it just was so um, was so stunning to witness is that you know at least that's why i asked you about nixon you said at least they put up the veneer you know the the facade of you know this this modicum of respect for the office and this respect for the relationship with the press to some whatever degree but with trump he just said i don't care (laughs) yeah and i I think in some ways
0: nixon laid the groundwork for that uh, right (laughs) in um so while Nixon had the facade, uh, mm-hmm. we hear from mm-hmm. his White House tapes that behind closed doors, te- talking to his talk aides, uh, he was doing whatever he could to uh, get even with the mm-hmm. press uh, exactly. and, and intimidate the press. So he um, had the FBI investigate journalists he didn't like. Nixon did. Nixon yeah, did. Nixon did. Nixon did don't know yet if trump did but who knows uh the nixon went after had the fbi uh investigate daniel shore who was at with cbs news at that point and later it was on, oh. on npr shore had written critical things about nixon's education policies or mm. i'm sorry broadcast critical things about his nixon had, had publicized he had this great new education initiative mm. shore reported nixon gave a speech about it but there was actually nothing going on with this initiative it wasn't it wasn't really wasn't real and that infuriated nixon so mm. he had the fbi try to investigate sure try to find dirt on him uh he gave an order uh to the fbi to see if they could uh uh find out if any journalists were homosexuals so they could try to blackmail oh them because uh of course in that era that that could be um a career ender for someone uh, to be So wait, who was running, who, wait,
1: who was running the FBI at that time? Uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, isn't he? Wasn't he a cross crossdresser? He, yeah, but uh <laughs> <they> didn't, know, <laughs> didn't know that
0: at the time. Uh, right, perhaps right. Nixon. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. They used the IRS to go after mm-hmm. journalists they didn't right. like. Uh, Mary McGrory, who was a top syndicated columnist, liberal columnist. Mm-hmm. Right. Nixon despised her. Uh, wow. She got audited like several years in a row because she, oh. she, she gave a lot of money to this uh, uh, home for, for orphaned girls. Uh, Mary McGorry, so they kept auditing whether this was a legitimate donation
1: oh my or
0: not. Uh, Robert Green of Newsday who was an investigative reporter who had written something critical about Nixon's friend Baby Rebozo. They had the oh. IRS audit him.
1: Oh, that's. A, uh, so this, this never, all shows
0: up in his, you know, Nixon's. Uh, that was one of the articles of, of impeachment, was abuse of power. And, and sure, the, sure. the IRS doing this was, was an abuse of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Washington Post was investigating Watergate, <clears throat> the, he tried to get the FCC uh, to uh, not allow Washington Post uh, TV stations, the Post owned TV stations around the country, was actually the main way mm-hmm. the Post made money. Uh, mm. he had people challenge the posts trying to renew their, their TV licenses, oh, which would God. have, would have probably sunk the post financially.
1: See, Nixon was a so, cunning dude. So he, he was, was cunning, a,
0: uh, a very smart. but it was, it was below most of it below the surface. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. His, his chief of staff, HR Haldeman came from the advertising <laughs> industry, oh, that's uh, dangerous. and he, he understood that it was important to package Nixon. Exactly. In, in a way uh, that was palatable to to the consuming mm-hmm. voting public. Uh, mm-hmm. So in the early years, you know, Nixon actually was was on TV a lot and was was mm. he wasn't a natural on TV, but but he worked no. at it and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, wasn't too bad compared to some of the other politicians of the day. Uh-huh. Uh, but when the going got tough uh, and, he, and he began to sweat, things didn't didn't go as especially well in that him.
1: debate against uh, Kennedy. I mean, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, John F. Kennedy. And I always, you know, it never, I just like every time you see who's ever running the FBI at the time. Says, oh, we serve at the pleasure of the president. I just, it's like, oh, we're, we're just like, this is a facade of a democracy. The Justice Department should not be serving at the pleasure of the president. The Justice Department should be serving at the pleasure of the people of the American United people. States. Yeah, and part. so there are these little things in the construct of our country that allow for this control from people in power. And it, I always note that when people say that and it always just, well, quite frankly, pisses me off. But what are we going to do? But
0: Yeah, so w- w- one more point, if I can, about, about Nixon, which I think
1: is really important. Uh, and please. I think w- how he
0: laid the groundwork for Trump. Mm. He and his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, uh, Haldeman actually wrote a memo on this. It's in, it's in the Nixon papers, uh, saying early on in Nixon's presidency that we should cast the press... As an enemy of the people.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: Uh, really? Not just that we don't like the press personally, but we're going to publicly make the press an enemy that people should hate, uh, like they like they hate crime, like they hate drugs. Uh, this uh, is like an internal memo. Union. This was an internal memo. It was was not okay, made uh-huh. public at right, the time. Right, right, right. Uh, and it's one reason they sent Agnew out to make these speeches, but they. Mm began to successfully, first of all, they were the first to start using the term the media instead of mm. journalist or the press. and the media sounds mm. like this big, distant, ominous institution. So mm-hmm. they began to criticize the media, not reporters, the media, right. uh, and began to say, that, you know the media is against the interest of the hardworking, everyday, Real Americans, the silent majority, They, they mm-hmm. Nixon called them. And I think Trump started to borrow that term as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And so Nixon really helped to lay the groundwork of this idea as uh, of journalists as something that politicians could. Very publicly, very actively cast as as being against the American people uh, mm-hmm. and being this this dangerous institution that that. Uh, that regular regular hardworking Americans uh, should be fighting against. Uh, and mm-hmm. Trump certainly picked up that
1: ball and ran with it. Oh, my gosh. But I mean, it's really you start to make the connections. It's really disturbing. Um, on that way. But I didn't realize the internal memos were such uh, was such I mean, I know there was vitriol, but there was a c- calculated effort. Highly calculated. Yeah, yeah. And that's what a lot that's what your Your book really brings to light how specific and how thoughtful some of these initiatives were with presidents trying to, you know, control what was happening to whatever degree. But it's so important to have real journalists that are out there to serve the public, not serve themselves. I mean, Rush Limbaugh wasn't a journalist. He was a blowhard who didn't give a damn about anybody but himself and his ratings from, you know, from where I sit. Um, I've never heard anything redeeming coming out of his mouth. Um, he j- And, and you know, he was very in lockstep with what Reagan was doing. Um, and, um, and, and Reagan puts on would put on the shows, you know, the great communicator as if he really cared, but you know, the union busting was at an all time high during his administration it was horrible. And so like, you know, the, one of the points that you made um, in the book, you say, um, although sometimes sloppy, partisan, and sensationalistic journalists have often courageously served the public when covering presidents, despite formidable forces trying to stop them. So, if you read this book, you'll realize yes, there are formidable forces. And I was just wondering, you know, who are some of your, um, who are some of the most courageous journalists in your mind around today? really doing the job? Because even, you know, some journalists at some of the more reputable um, publications, like the New York Times, have had to leave and had been so-called discredited in mainstream press and had to branch out and do their own thing. I was just wondering, who do you admire in the landscape as real courageous journalists, you know, right now?
0: That's a great question. Uh And... You know, we have, you know, role models, you know, some of the journalists who took on Joseph McCarthy, which was incredibly courageous in the 1950s. Those who <clears throat> challenged Wilson during World War One and, and, and uh-huh. you know, those who obviously challenged Nixon. Uh-huh. Uh I think. Um, I would point to. Uh, you know, in terms of investigative reporting, David Farrenfold, who until okay. recently at, at, at The Washington Post, uh, He's the uh, one who uncovered that the Trump's foundation uh, actually gave very little money to charity and instead would buy like huge paintings of Trump uh, and, and just book events at Trump, uh, Trump-owned uh, resorts uh, and, and was not much of a charitable institution. He's the one mm-hmm. who uh, uncovered the famous Access Hollywood tape uh, oh. where Trump is uh, boasting about assaulting women. Uh, mm. so in terms of investigative reporting i'd put him at the top uh jane Mayer, uh oh, yeah. at the, i believe she saw it the new yorker uh mm-hmm. just done incredible work about the dark money that's behind politics the hidden money that the mm-hmm. billionaires and, and corporations uh, are able to hide uh in terms of influencing uh you know Putting behind various candidates or, or, or trying to mm-hmm. influence the way uh, policies are decided but i'd say those are two of the top uh investigative reporters uh but i i would also like to say that um the amount of abuse uh that female journalists mm-hmm. and journalists of color uh just on on the whole have received uh in the mm-hmm. last few years Uh, And I'd I'd also include Jewish journalists in there as well, Mm, mm -hmm, uh, mm. are often just viciously um, attacked Mm. uh, if they write say or write anything that that challenges the Trump narrative Uh, Mm. and any of them who continue to do their jobs, uh, continue to try to dig for the facts, uh, Mm -hmm. continue to try to get information to the public, I I think are doing tremendous and, and courageous work
1: yeah i mean it's interesting i mean that the the people that come to mind for me are matt taibbi christopher hedges laura poitras and glenn greenwald with the snowden documentary i mean talk about courage that's like you know you've got every you're like risking everything to to get these stories um especially with snowden because boy uh, i remember um obama really coming hard at him really wanting to get him back in this country and couldn't do it but and that's you know a critical thing in terms of mass surveillance on all of us which we didn't know Mm -hmm. unless and you know and you can agree or disagree with his methods or whatever but the bottom line is covering that story you got to have some courage because if you don't do it right or you make a misstep you could end in you could end up in jail or um, have some serious charges brought against you. And, um, you know, I I just really admire journalists. A lot of people don't. I remember when I was on the campus. I remember when uh, one of the young journalists out that came out of Medill, I can't think of his name yet at the moment, but I'm sure you'll you'll remind me, who um, was killed tragically in the Middle East when he came. James, Jim Foley. That's right. Yeah. And I remember when the service was happening and my class that I was teaching had just stopped. And then it just kind of hit me that this young man went and was beheaded and it was horrible. It was just, ugh. But talk about the courage on that young man was just unbelievable. Yeah, Jim, is, unbelievable. Uh, a really uh, important
0: uh, example of, of a courageous journalist who was passionate about telling stories that were being left untold. Uh-huh. Uh, and he traveled to conflict zones. He'd been in, I believe, in Af- either Iraq or Afghanistan. So I, I should uh-huh. know this. Uh, he uh-huh. definitely was in Libya uh, during the <laughs> fighting there. He'd been captured in Libya uh-huh. uh, and, and held by the Gaddafi government for, for, for over a month. You know, He came back and then he went to Syria uh, because he thought it was important to tell the stories of the civilians who were suffering incredibly uh, mm-hmm. Through these wars, and uh, who uh, stories were not being told because it was it was mm-hmm. dangerous to go there. But he was willing to take the risk uh, to uh, to to you know they say you know journalists should afflict the comfort comfortable and comfort the afflicted. He, he was all about helping the afflicted, uh, mm-hmm. and and he gave his life to do that. and And it's a, a good reminder that uh, it's not just Americans like Jim Foley, but but journalists all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. risk their lives today uh, in, in the Philippines and Turkey, uh-huh. uh, all, all around uh, where dictators and, and strongmen are, are ruling and don't don't want to ever be questioned or challenged. There's still journalists out there trying to tell those stories, uh, and, and mm-hmm. several are murdered every year and, and even more are, are thrown in jail. You know, think about the people in, in covering the Ukraine war right now. Uh, oh, exactly and, and the ris- exactly. and the risks that they're taking In order Mm -hmm. that we have the information to know what's what's going on there and and i think most people have no idea the kind of sacrifices that are made to, to tell those stories
1: and that's why it's so profoundly twisted and insidious how some presidents you know starting with nixon and um and exacerbated under the trump administration to cast journalists as the enemy when actually, most journalists out there are actually doing a service to us, the people. You know, there's checks and balances in this grand experiment we have in the United States of America, you know, with the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branches. But the fourth real check and balance is the press. And when we fall for that nonsense that the press is, it's just like, I mean, not everybody is great at doing their job. Yeah, the and people make mistakes,
0: but, you, know, they're, they're, you know. Yeah. There's, Reporting that's uh, uh, sometimes needs to be corrected, or it's not Uh quite—you
1: know—might
0: lean one way or or the other way. But by I've worked with you, you you have too. I've I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of journalists uh, Uh in my career, Uh, and every single one of them, uh, their primary motive in their job is just to try to get the facts for the story. And they may not get all the facts they may miss some facts they may mm-hmm. get a few facts wrong uh, they may pick some facts over other facts but they just want to put out a good story that will inform people uh yes. and i know people i know there's a lot of people who think that journalists are constantly just sitting there conniving trying to somehow distort everything uh it's not the journalists i know i know there's some very public ones you know the, the faces we see uh uh, uh uh, on cable tv sometimes who uh mm-hmm. i think are less interested in the facts and more interested in 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 trying to frame the 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 world to to conform to their opinions uh mm-hmm. but the there, there's a whole lot of fact-based journalists out there just really trying to do a good job
1: yeah absolutely well i know we need to wrap up and i wanted to just mention you know you also met, you also said something toward the end of your book you said um You know, declining revenues, there are declining revenues in journalism outlets, how digital outlets such as Facebook are generating revenue, you mentioned, from um, news produced and revenue not going to the organization that actually produced them. And there's something you mentioned, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. Yeah. Could you just uh, mention that a little bit and also give us an idea of what you feel can be done, because I know we're running out of time, to give us some sort of... uh, Viewpoint where you know what can be done to actually enhance independent journalism. Yeah great chapter in, in and or it's a great question. And
0: my last uh, chapter is actually devoted great to trying to, <laughs> to answer it. Uh, so there's several things I, I, I mentioned there. I'll um, maybe highlight three of them in the, sure, for the purpose of, of time. You, you uh, mentioned this, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. It's it's uh-huh. a bipartisan measure. Uh, It's Hmm. got both Republican and Democrats uh, signed on as sponsors, as co-sponsors. Wonderful. Uh, Wonderful. It's been in the House. It's been in the Senate. Uh, I think at one point it was they were trying to fold it into the Build Back Better, uh, Biden's big initiative. uh, And and then, of course, that didn't get through, uh, but still before Congress. Uh, And what it would basically do uh, is use tax credits to try to support Local journalism, uh, because, mm. um, as I'm sure you know, and, and many of your re- your listeners know, uh, local newspapers, local news outlets have have, have been devastated mm-hmm. in the last ten to twenty years, uh, totally. by the economy, uh, and and by the shifts in technology. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. people think they can get their news. Sometimes they do get their news through the, through their phones. Uh, why subscribe to a local newspaper? Uh, so mm-hmm. so they've been gutted. Uh, Local Journalism Sustainability Act would give tax credits uh, to companies who advertise in newspapers. Mm-hmm. If you advertise mm-hmm. in a paper, mm-hmm. you get a tax credit. If you subscribe uh, to a newspaper or, or make a donation to a newspaper,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, it does have to be print. It, you know, it could be all online news site. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you subscribe subscriber to a news outlet or give a donation to a news outlet, you get a tax credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, the news outlets in turn, if they hire actual journalist reporters, they get some tax credit too. So they can't just be like a shell operation. That's just aggregating information from somewhere else, but they actually have to hire, hire people who are doing journalism. They, they get a tax credit Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, Uh,
1: that's terrific. Uh,
0: and it's a way it's a way for people to, in a way that people are voting, like, a lot of people in the community say i i think this news outlet is is valuable mm-hmm. um it's kind of expensive to subscribe but hey i'm gonna get a tax credit i think mm-hmm. it's worth it uh and that's i'm very wary of the government picking and choosing news outlets to to get money to but but yes. but this is letting the people decide uh yes. so i would i hope that bill gets through congress we need to do something to make the tech giants uh facebook and Google, or Facebook is now Meta, Meta and Google oh, right. uh, are, are, are the biggest culprits, uh, uh-huh. the, the Twitter and some of the others as well. Basically, uh, they make money off the content that journalists produce, that news organizations produce. Uh, so if you or I or any of our friends on whatever social media platform we're using, I do this, I i cut and paste stuff that i've read elsewhere
1: mm-hmm.
0: i post it on facebook or i'll put it on twitter mm-hmm. uh tw- facebook sells ads twitter sells ad google search sells ads based on that content mm-hmm. uh the original news outlet doesn't necessarily get a dime of it unless people follow through to the link and then
1: Mm -hmm. go to whatever which is insane right i mean it's ridiculous they
0: they, they've been using that content for free uh and meta just announced i think it was yesterday that they had some deal with publishers that they would pay publishers Uh for content that was appearing on their on their sort of news news branch uh but now they're saying they're cutting that back
1: oh so (laughs) i think
0: uh i think our tax code (laughs) needs to catch up with that and and uh absolutely uh in and uh money from those tech giants uh who are making money off of journalism uh more than half of the digital advertising dollars go to go to meta and google Mm. more than Mm. half wow uh they 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 have such a uh near monopoly on it uh -hmm. and that 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 advertising revenue uh a lot of it's going away that that would have otherwise gone to journalism uh Mm -hmm. so uh yeah. Australia has a model of, of, of legislation that that uh, requires the social media companies to to pay uh, for journalism that they use. Oh, great. Uh, so mm-hmm. put put a law behind it. I believe say Maryland has as uh, you know, taxes, some of the profits uh, to uh, <sighs> that the tech giants are making from from journalism. And that could that could mm-hmm. be fed back through things like the Sustainability Act. Uh, mm. So, I think there needs to be some, there needs to be some legislation on on the federal level to 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 rein in uh, what the tech giants are able to do
1: absolutely
0: and then the third thing I would highlight is something which I think is responsibility of all of us, but I think also something that should be taught in the schools, which is media literacy <coughs> amen uh, We amen. teach algebra, we teach trigonometry yes. uh, uh, i 'm oh a huge fan God. of poetry. I think everyone should should, should learn poetry. Uh, I think they should also learn. <laughs> media literacy uh because we consume media almost every minute of our waking hours totally in in some way and people should learn from an early age how the algorithms of social media work and how they Uh channel some information to you over other information to you Uh depending on what you're clicking on uh they should be able to distinguish propaganda from from news gathering uh, appreci- and even the astute observer, the learned person. Right. It's not. It's it's, it can't, it's 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 hard today really because we're flooded with stuff. Exactly. Uh, I think people have a hard time understanding what is meant as opinion journalism and what is meant as we're just going to try to present the facts as best we can find them. Uh-huh. Journalism. Oh, uh, not totally. that either not that either one of them is perfect, but people should be able to understand the difference of that. They should understand Mm -hmm. how uh, the the impact that advertising has on on Mm -hmm. what content is produced. Totally. They should understand uh, the conglomeration (laughs) of of media companies uh, that Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's Uh, critical. I think I think these that kind of understanding is is essential if we're going to survive as a democracy. Absolutely. Should be taught in the schools. And we should, uh, as those of us who are beyond school age, should uh, Uh, find ways to to understand it better.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's just so interesting just to wrap up, and thank you so much for that, and thank you for writing this book. The the role of independent media is so critical right now because we have these news shows that have an incentive to to put forth a very specific um, opinion, perspective. You know, even though, like, you know, Rachel Maddow or Chris Hayes can do some real journalism, but they're, they're the way they present it is oftentimes a rebuttal to what Fox is doing, so they're actually reacting to what Fox is doing. And, and then we get all of these these reports that are just ginning people up, mm-hmm. and there's not a whole lot of real communication. It's ginned up
0: controversy, right? Yeah, it, and, and controversy perfect, sells, uh, for, yeah, for cable the,
1: news at least. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you have independent media outlets that are not run by that, all of a sudden you have the possibility of an informed citizenry. That actually might be productive moving forward. So um, I I learned so much from your book. Again, for those of you who want to check this out, it's called Clash, Presidents in the Press in Times of Crisis, written by my dear friend and colleague John Marshall. I encourage you all to get it. Are there any parting shots for our, our, for our viewers that we should take away from this conversation or anything that you want to let us in on that uh, we should know as to motivate us to read the book and get clear <laughs> on what's happening.
0: Oh gosh, I, you know, I, I could probably talk for hours and I Steve, I really greatly appreciate the opportunity to be on, on your show and it's sure. always good to talk with you. Uh, I'll end um, I'll just try to end with something fun, uh, okay, not sure. in the book, but you know, after researching you know, these presidents, it almost felt like I was living with them as I, as I wrote mm-hmm. each chapter. I was just so immersed mm-hmm. in, in what they did and kind of in my head, I imagined um, I was going to have a barbecue and which presidents would I want to have at my barbecue? Uh, oh, that's a good one. The, the one I decided I would least want to have w- would be Woodrow Wilson. Uh, first, uh, <laughs> first he's a raging racist, so that's, that, that pretty much knocks him out to begin with. Uh, even if you could set that aside, he was such a sort of stern, uh, he just felt he, he was just sure he knew the truth about everything uh, mm. and would just lecture oh people and be very stern. It uh, 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 just did not seem like a whole lot of fun to hang out with. Right. Uh, the one I would want to invite to my cocktail Barbecue would be Franklin Roosevelt, uh, okay. because he was known for really being able to mix a good cocktail, uh, <laughs> as well as being highly sociable. Uh, so I figured he'd be a lot of fun to have there, and it would help right. get the party going. So uh, if you want party advice on on presidents, read Clash: Presidents in the Press in Times of Crisis.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John. It's been a real pleasure. You're welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning into the show. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to subscribe to hear more compelling shows on Rhythm of Life and keep an eye out for our upcoming series of how we as a society oftentimes incentivize all the wrong behavior here in the United States. We see this in the healthcare industry, in the media, and in our educational systems, to name a few of the fields we will be covering. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review so more people can hear about us and share about Rhythm of Life on social media and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Ordauer.
0: This has been a Rhythm and Light production.